0: When uh, Jesus rode it in Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, about this same time of year, it was to the acclamation of the Hebrew crowds. If you remember from Matthew 21.9, Jesus has come down from the Mount of Olives. There's an entourage with him coming with him. They hear as they approach Jerusalem. Their crowd hears them. They come out to join them. And as they go into the city, Matthew records the crowds that went before him and that followed him we're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They say son of David, and that was a key term for them because they're saying we understand this Jesus, Jesus from Nazareth. He is the Messiah that was promised. Son of David is a key term for Messiah. So he's the king coming into Jerusalem that God promised us. But the word I want to focus on as we begin this morning is Hosanna. So that means in Hebrew, save now, or I pray save. So as the king is coming into his city, the Hosanna means, God, would you save? We pray you'd save and you'd save now. And of course, for them, Roman oppression was the thought. You know, they they are overrun by the Romans. The Romans run their country. But here's the interesting thing to me. If you think about what Jesus' name means, so we say Jesus in English, and in Greek it was Yesu, and in Hebrew, if you read your Old Testament, it says Joshua, the same same name, but it would actually be Yehoshua, Yehoshua, and guess what Yehoshua means? So the Yah on the front end is Yah, or God, so Jesus' name means God save, or God saves, So as he's riding into Jerusalem, the crowds, we could paraphrase, save now, you saving God. Save now, God saves. That's pretty good. Guys, this is the thing. You and I serve a saving God. Our God saves. Our God saves. If you don't take anything else away from this morning, remember that. Thinking historically, God promised to save mankind after the fall. You remember the promise that the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, would eventually crush Satan and deliver us from sin and his dominion. God saved Noah and his family in and through the flood. God saved Israel from Egyptian slavery. We'll talk about a little bit of that in a bit. God saved Israel repeatedly from the enemies around them. Today, Christians possess the greatest salvation, which is the forgiveness of our sins, the possession of eternal life as children of God, and that's all through our saving King, Jesus, our saving King. Our God is a saving God, and that's what you'll see this morning. We're in the series Like a Tree, Psalm 18. If you have a Bible or your app, uh, now's a good time to open there. Uh, We're going through selected psalms through the book of Psalms. This is the first book, uh, Psalms 1 through 41. We're in Psalm 18 this morning. Guys, this is a long song. It's 50 verses, and we're going to read every verse. And what this means for me this morning is I'm going to sort of hop, skip, jump, and run a little bit through so that we get through this in a timely fashion. So really, we'll read big, big sections of the song. And we'll make some of the key points, some of the big rocks. Uh, this is a song of thanksgiving by King David. It's written at a time when he's thinking about his life and the way God has saved him in the past. You'll see that's everything that it's about. This same song, with very slight alteration, you'll also read in 2 Samuel 22. And that's later on in his life, and it appears there to be kind of a summary of David looking back over his life and how God at that point in time at least had delivered him from all those past occasions related to the enemy. We're going to look at this in seven different movements. This is sort of my outline. Your Bible might have a slightly different one. There's a brief introduction, uh, David's description of his troubles, and by the way, um, the songs are poetry and they're very imaginative, and and they paint pictures. And so one one of the big assets of that for us is, David doesn't tell us specifically what the battle was or what the warfare looked like that he's remembering that God delivered him from. He tells us what it felt like. And because he tells us what it felt like, we can relate, because we wouldn't have the same set of circumstances. But when he says, this is what it felt like when I was in trouble, you and I could say, well, that's what I felt like, too. We, we, can, we can relate because it's the description. It's not the particulars. It's the description. So his description of his troubles, his description of God showing up, what that looked like and what that felt like. God's deliverance of David. Uh, fifth, God's heart toward David related to his faithfulness. Uh, God's equipping David for his battles and also a closing doxology. The, the song begins and ends on praise. To God. And remember, this is Old Testament. It's from a different era. We're going to talk about some of the particular ways in which we reference this for our own application. We can't apply it directly to ourselves. It doesn't apply to us directly in many of the particulars, but it certainly applies applicationally. And we'll talk about that too. So if you've got your Bible or your app open, this is the heading to the choir master. Again, that could be to God Himself or to the person for whom. They're delivering or they're overseeing the singing of this song in the assembly there in Israel. It's a psalm of David. He's the servant of the Lord of Yahweh who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Remember King Saul had persecuted David there for years. And he said, verses 1 through 3, he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Guys, we mentioned when we looked at Psalm 8, it starts with this emotional blast right out of the gates that there was a lot going on for David emotionally and that's just how he starts. It's with this abrupt emotional expression you know you prick david what came out it was praise to god well that's exactly the same thing here it's this emotional expression lord i love you you're my strength guys what overflows our heart when you talk to other people what can you not keep in you know Kent not mention we're in interesting times and so maybe the first thing we talk to others about is uh inflation or maybe it's the wars and russia and Ukraine, and, th- and that's probably fine. But as we're talking to someone thoughtfully about what's going on in our life, what comes out? What are we filled with? David is filled with thanksgiving and praise for God. What are we praising God for? You notice in these verses, he starts by speaking God's name. Jehovah uh, would be King James, Yahweh, or Lord, all caps in English. But then he reels off eight terms to describe his view of God so he's Yahweh he's the eternally existent God the only one but but he also sees him through these lenses he says you're my strength so remember David's a warrior he fights battles all the time he says God you're the very strength that gets me up and keeps me going you're my strength he also says you're my rock and remember in Israel it's a rocky place there's lots of hills especially through the middle of the country This rock means it's like a crag or a cliff. So, you know, if you're in warfare, if you're on the top of a a craggy cliff, a place that's hard to scale up, you're in a good defensible position. David said God is like a crag or a cliff that he's on top of, so it's hard for the enemy to get to him. He said God is his fortress. You think of a thick-walled castle, something impregnable. Nobody can get through that fortress to get at me. He's my deliverer. He's the one who comes down to rescue me or to save me. God is my deliverer. Uh, He says God simply, El in the Hebrew, E-L in English. He's God. He's the only God I recognize. When I'm calling out, I'm calling out to Yahweh, the eternally existent God. He's the only God, El, that I call on. He says uh, in English if you got the ESV it uses the term rock again it's not the same term in the Hebrew it's a different term it also means an elevated place that was easy to defend a place that you could escape to he says you're my refuge you're my shelter you know if i need a place to hide god is the place i hide he's my shield If you're a warrior going into battle, the shield is what is in front of you and it's taking the hits or the arrows instead of you. God is the shield, the one as I go into battle. It's God that's in front of me that's protecting me. And then last, he's the horn of my salvation. That goes along a little bit with the first description of God as my strength. In the Old Testament, horn was a symbol of power or strength. So if you think of a big ox and the horns on the ox, the thought was the horn represents strength or power again so God is the one that gives me power for deliverance let me ask you another question when emergency strikes when you're in trouble when you need help of one sort or another what's your first response and this if if the finances are low if I get sick if the bottom falls out of a relationship what's our first response so so David's is going to be prayer David's is going to be prayer. What's our first response? Before we go to the doctor, before we call the accountant, before we tell 10 other people what someone said to us or did to us, are we going first and primarily to God? Are we taking our issues to God? Lord, I need help. I need a little deliverance. I need some saving here. Are we taking that first and primarily to God? That's exactly what David did. Look at verses 4 through 6. Uh, David gives poetic description. This is what his situation felt like. It's what it felt like. He doesn't tell us the specifics. It's just this is what it felt like. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. So the cords of death, ropes that are going to kill me, have tied me up. I can't do anything for myself. And the torrents of destruction, a torrent is a flood of water. David said, it felt like I was tied up and I was thrown into a raging river. I've got no ability to save myself. Tied up in a raging river. Verse 5, the cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. i just point out here too, would we call this an English? A literature lesson, literature lesson, not English. So, you know, if you listen to an English song, the lyrics are poetry, aren't they? They're a kind of poetry. And typically in English, we use meter and we use rhyming patterns. That's what we do with poetry. That's not what the Hebrews did with poetry. So what they use is called parallelism. And so what you see here in verses 4 and 5 is parallelism. This is called synthetic parallelism because it says the same thing twice in slightly different phrase. Look at verse 4. The cords of death encompass me. I'm tied up, the cords of death. Look at verse 5, excuse me, 4 and then 5. The cords of Sheol entangled me. Little different words, but it's the same image. I'm tied up, I'm confined, I can't help myself. The second part of verse 4, the torrents of destruction assailed me. Second half of verse 5, the snares of death confronted me. It's saying the same thing with a little different language. Now later, I probably won't remember to say it, you'll see oppositional parallelism if you if you read the proverbs you'll see this everywhere Uh, parallelism and when it uses opposites it really highlights them by the fact that they're absolutely opposite from each other this is the same synthetic or opposite so anyway that's there verse six in my distress i called upon the lord to my god i cried for help from his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears so david tells us I was in trouble. I was in deep trouble and this is what it felt like. Felt like I was tied up, thrown in a raging river, I'm going down and I have no way to save myself. If you wrote Psalm 18, what would you say? So if you look in your past or maybe your present, if I'm hurting, one way or another, if I need some saving or some delivering, what does that feel like? David's telling us what it felt like for him, which is hugely helpful. I just have nothing I can do and I'm being carried along by forces I have no control over. Look at verses 7 through 15. God shows up. So David verse 6 says, I cried and God heard. Starting in verse 7. So this is, this is David saying, I cried, God heard, and God came down to save me. He's my deliverer. So here, here he is. He's coming to save me. The earth reeled and rocked the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. He's talking about an earthquake. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens, the heavens themselves, and he came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And by the way, you've got to see this in your mind. Go home and read Ezekiel 1, and there's this uh, presentation of God showing up to the prophet Ezekiel, and it's a storm, and that's sort of the same image you'll see here. But he's seeing a distant storm, and it's dark underneath because the clouds are so big and tall. It's dark underneath, but there's thunder and lightning going on inside the clouds, and that's what David is seeing here as God shows up. The earth is quaking, and storm is rolling in. He rode on a cherub, an angel, and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind, just like a storm cloud coming in. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. guys remember have you been in your house if you have old windows there's this huge clash of thunder so that your windows shake that's kind of what's going on here hailstones coals of fire he sent out his arrows and he scattered them the david's enemies excuse me he flashed forth lightnings and he routed them the enemy excuse me then the Channels of the sea were seen, so not only is the earth quaking, but it's as if the sea itself has been split. Think of the Red Sea crossing. The foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. This is a powerful God that's showing up to save David. Earthquake, smoke, fire, darkness, clouds, thunder, lightning, that's how David's describing God coming down to save him. Listen to the way Alan Ross in his commentary in this psalm says this about the description. He says, even though the phenomena, the the natural phenomena, he's describing this darkness in the cloud, veil the Lord, David's not saying I saw the Lord himself, he's describing everything around him. He said, they are so compounded and so dazzling that they cannot be mistaken for ordinary events. When God comes in power to rescue his people, all nature is moved at his coming. It seems most likely that there was an array of natural phenomena in the heavens and on the earth that were clearly a sign of divine intervention. So we understand in poetic imagery, we may use hyperbola, we may say uh, simile and metaphor, it was like this, or when God showed up, it was this, as a means of description, but Ross thinks some of this was literal, and I do too, that there was this accompanying nature itself was responding to God showing up to help David. Now, David's description, and guys, if you just do a little catalog in your in your mind for just a second, what does God look like when he has shown up at other times before and after David? So if you go back in the Exodus account, especially when the 10 miracles that accompany the deliverance occurred, do you remember there's hail and fire and there's darkness there's death at the end but then god shows up as a cloud it's fire or it's pillar and you remember when they get to sinai do you remember what that looked like thunder and lightning thick cloud on the mountain sinai wrapped in smoke because the lord had descended on it in fire the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln the whole mountain trembled greatly there's earthquake Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So God's coming down to deliver, and all nature is part of that arrival of God. He's shaking the earth itself. Now, guys, this is interesting, too. If you go to the New Testament, the greatest deliverance God ever accomplished was also accompanied by spectacular natural signs. So if you go to Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54, if you remember the second half of Jesus' time on the cross, what happens? A darkness comes over the earth that wasn't, it wasn't an eclipse. There's a supernatural darkness for the second three hours. Jesus hangs on the cross. And do you remember what happens when he dies, when he breathes his last? There's a great earthquake. A great earthquake and tombs are opened, it says. And do you remember what happens in the temple at Jesus' death? That great, big, thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies is ripped in two from top to bottom. Those signs accompanied Jesus' death where he paid the price for our sins. God was giving indication through these great natural signs that were accompanied that. So here's part of the thing. David knows that his God is the God of Sinai. He knows the God that showed up at Sinai in those great signs of power, that's the God he's called on. And that's the God he says showed up to save him from his enemies when he needed help. Same God, same appearance. And guys, this is the thing for us. It's good to remember this, isn't it? That God, this description, David's writing about this, that's your God. Right? That's your God. That's my God. He's the same God. So he was saving David then and he accompanied it with signs so you know there's no mistaking this is God and he's showing up and he's delivering. The same God that David was praying to that showed up was the same God that spoke to Moses, was the same God that parted the sea, is the same God we worship today. And it's so encouraging. We'll talk about the different ways God's calling us to interact in the world around us today, but that's the same God that has our life in his hands. God wants to save us, guys. Nothing and no one can keep that salvation from occurring. No situation. Here's a caveat. Here's just, so this is when you apply Old Testament text, and especially some of these Psalms, we've got we've to say, okay, this is in context, and now this is how we can apply it to our setting. No situation we face is too great for the power and provision of God. It's impossible. He's God. Nothing's greater. No one has greater power. I was just reading Job yesterday. I thought this was interesting. God made an equivalency between justice and power, which I really hadn't seen before, I hadn't thought about. But this was the thing. Job's called God into question, and God says this I'm God, therefore I determine what's right. Because I have all power. You have no reference for right and wrong apart from me, because I am the God of all power. Everything's come from me, I'm the creator. I'm the one who tells you what's right and wrong. You don't determine that. You can't call me into question because I have all power. No situation we face is too great for the power and provision of God. Here's the thing, either to deliver us, and that's what David is saying here. That's what David is praising God for, or for sustaining us. And oftentimes that's where we'll find ourselves when we call out to God for for help. If God leaves us in an oppressive situation, it's because the work he's accomplishing in and through us right there is of greater importance than our immediate deliverance. I happen to be in 2 Corinthians this morning too. Paul, he cries out to God, do you remember the passage? Three times and says, God, hey, would you save me from this? You sent a demon to torment me and I'm not feeling the love. Would you take care of this? Would you take this thing away? And God says, well, no, I won't because I'm actually saving you through the torment. I'm saving you from pride. So I won't take it away, but I'll sustain you in it. You'll be compelled to seek me because of that pain in your life. And that's when God says, you know, my, my strength is perfected in weakness. So Paul says, so I'm okay with that because I understand God's using this. He's not saving me from it. He's saving me through it. He's actually using that thing to save me from myself. So verses 16 through 19, David's language grows a bit softer here, more personal. And guys, this is one of those verses that for me, the the image is so rich and so helpful. So you remember what it feels like for him. Trust up in the water, sinking, can't save himself. Verse 16, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Now just put your your mind, I'm tied up, I'm in the raging river, I'm going down, I'm being carried along, and there's not a thing I can do, and suddenly out of nowhere, a big strong hand just reaches through the water, lays hold of me, and pulls me out. That's what salvation felt like to David. God's hand reached down, grabbed hold of me. There was no question that I was going to slip. He reached down, he grabbed hold of me, and he pulled me right out of that water, right out of that situation. And as you'll see, he put me on dry ground. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So, I felt like I was trussed up, going down fast. God's hand reaches down through the waters of death, pulls me up and puts me into this broad place. That's what salvation felt like. What have God's deliverances in your life and mine looked like and what have they felt like? Have you had occasion where you've called out to God, Lord, I need help, I need some deliverance, I need some saving? What did it look like? On the occasions when God actually delivered you from the thing you were calling out on, not where he sustained you through it necessarily, but what did God's deliverance look like? The mighty appearance of God and the great salvation was all because, look at verse 19, because God delighted in David and David knows it. Is that interesting? So look at that, that's cause and effect. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because, for this reason, because he delighted in me. He delight. God delighted in me. David says, "Delight is to be pleased with, to desire, to favor, to like." Uh, God saved me because He liked me, because He favored me. Now, guys, this is not arrogance, and this is not pretend, and it's not make believe. God delighted in David, and David knew it. Let me paint this a little different. David lives in the Old Testament and he's God's servant. And David knows that God delights in him. Okay? If you're a Christian today, you're God's child. You're closer to God than David. Do you remember what Jesus says of John the Baptist? He says, John the Baptist is the greatest person that's ever lived. Think of that. Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David. He says, but the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. If you're a Christian, you are God's child, and God has chosen to set his love on you. And do you know that God the Father delights in you as his child? He does. There's this crazy passage in Zephaniah 3. It's kind of unique to me in all the Bible. Zephaniah is not a book most of us read. Last time you read Zephaniah? It's it's not for length, it's short, it's three chapters, and it's primarily about judgment. God's going to judge Israel, and then he's going to save Israel. But in the text that talks about him saving Israel, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, he's a warrior who saves. And it says he is going to uh, rejoice over you, he's going to quiet you in his love, and he is going to exult over you with loud singing. This is God he's talking about exulting over his servants with loud singing now guys as children of god you're closer to god than david was you're closer to god than the jews were you have the spirit of christ in you and you are god's children and he not only loves you he delights in you as his children now we understand if if i have a disobedient child i don't quit loving them right and my delight might feel a little less maybe but they're my child and I love them and I delight in them and we'll get through that the relationship never ultimately changes and this is the thing if you know if you know if you know God loves you and more than that that he likes you and he delights in you the very knowledge of that is a kind of salvation in and of itself Because what you find is it delivers you from trying to work up to be good enough that God will love you or that God will choose to love you or that God will choose to delight in you. If you start from the knowledge, God already loves me. He knows everything I've ever done. There's no secrets from him. He knows every future sin I'll ever commit. He's still chosen to set his love on me and he delights in me. Guys, your lifestyle will change overnight because now I live out of thanks just like David was doing here I live out of thanks because I know God delights in me he delights in me and I know it that liberates me from self-effort now I'm free I'm free just to get on with living and when I blow it which we'll talk about when I blow it I I get on I I repent and I confess and I keep going God delighted in David and he knew it Psalm forty one eleven, I think is on your sheet Uh, let's see oh here's the other thing (laughs) here's the other thing so i say to you god delights in you you're his child and god delights in you but then you know what i'm also saying if i'm saying that to one child of god i'm saying that to every child of god right so what does it mean to us to know that god delights in the other christians here in lion and lamb church what, is it, what does it mean for me to know that God delights in his other children just like he delights in me when I think you've got issues? I think they're unresolved. And you said something to me I didn't like. You treated me in a way I didn't like. We're supposed to remember that the other believers in Jesus are not only our brothers and sisters in faith, God delights in them. God delights in them. And I've got to take that into account with my own attitude, thoughts, words, or actions, when I'm talking to or interacting with others that God, my father and their father, delights in. Listen to this from Psalm 16, again of David. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Guess what? In whom is all my delight. David says, God delights in me And I delight in God's saints. Is that true of us? God delights in me and I know it. And because God delights in the other saints like me, I delight in them. I delight in the saints. That's what David says. Guys, again, this should be David's experience raised to another level for us who have the Spirit of God who live in the New Testament era. It should be that plus William Wilberforce lived all his life wealthy until the very end of his life. He had to bail out a son who would got into terrible debt. And so this guy who could do anything he wanted all his life, <clears throat> he was uh, reduced to living with his children. He, he, was, he was broke. And so he lived with his children. But listen to what he said. This is near the end of his life, living in one of his children's homes. He said this. The delight I have in feeling that there are a few people whose hearts are really attached to me is the highest I have in this world. This, he was one meek guy. He said, you know what delights me is knowing that others are delighted in me. I delight in them and I realize they delight in me. And that's the thing that I, I count as my chief treasure. To have that relationship of mutual delight with others. That's no small thing. How are we treating the others that God delights in? Uh, Verses 20 through 30, David's going to proclaim his own faithfulness. And guys, again, this isn't the statement of an arrogant man. This is a guy who's talking to God about his relationship and how God is interacting with him and some of the reasons why. Delight is one. Here's another, faithfulness. Verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statues I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. So first David says, God rescued me because he delighted in me. Now he says, God rescued me because I was faithful. We're saying, hold on. You're, David, are you saying you don't sin? We say, no, nope, that's not at all what David is saying. David's not saying he's without sin. Uh, Luke 1.6, when you read about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, the text says that they were both righteous before God. If you read Philippians 3.6, Paul says of his own life, I was blameless according to the law. That's what David's saying. And this is the thing. It's not moral perfection. It's not sinlessness. Remember, Israel's in a covenant with God. And God says, if you do these things, you'll be in right relationship with me and I'll bless you. And David says, Lord, here's the thing. I'm I'm doing what you've told me to do. So I understand I'm okay with you. I'm in right relationship. I'm being faithful. And so I understand I'm doing my part, and this is all provisional, of course. I'm doing my part. I'm being faithful in all the ways I know. And so God says, great, now I'm free to do all these other things because that's what I told you I would do. If you will do A, I will do B. David says, that's my life. I'm being faithful in all the ways I know how, and that therefore I know I can count on God. God's good as and better than his word. He's going to do all the things he said. He's going to deliver me. That's what he'll do because I've been keeping his word in his ways. Verse 21, kept the ways of Yahweh. Verse 22, his rules and his statutes were guiding David in his life. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 18, don't know if David ever did this. It's not recorded. But Deuteronomy 17, 18 said the kings of Israel were to write out their own personal copy of the law. Why would they do that? Because ruling in God's name, they were to rule as God called them to. They were to write out the law. They were to be conversant. And you know, David knew the law. He'd heard it. He'd read it. Maybe he wrote out his own copy. He knew what God was calling him to. And so that's how he lived. That was the lens by which he saw life. This is what God told me to do. That's what I'm doing. Now, we want to be quick to say, we look back on David's life and depending on which part of it, we say, man, David's a, a man after God's own heart, don't we? Uh, he's taken down Goliath. He's fighting Yahweh's battles. We'll talk about that in just a second. But then you get later, and what do you say? Oh, he's an adulterer, and he's a murderer. Could that same man write that after those events? And in some significant way, I would say, well, yeah, actually he could. And why would I say that? Because God made provision for David's sin. And guys, God's provision for David's sin was the same he made for yours it was christ's saving work on the cross that was ultimately the reason god could overlook david's sins and sustain him so not a claim to moral perfection and this is the thing for us too like david later we'll we'll do psalm 51 lord willing in the future right david's great psalm of confession but when we sin what do we do scripture calls us to do something very clearly and david gave an example of it so if we sin, what do we do? We confess our sins. That's our part. I, confess, I told God the truth. Lord, this is what I did. This is what I said. This is what I thought. I told God the truth. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if we know God delights in us, we don't have to work to be a better person. And guys, it's a losing proposition to get God to like us. We'll never measure up, and we'll know it. But also on this, if we think, it goes kind of like this. Do you ever do this? I sinned. I feel really bad. I confess my sin, and I feel really bad for the next week or two or three because I feel so bad about that sin because I still feel what? I still feel guilty. I still feel shame. That's unbiblical. So the thing is, just like David, if I've gone to God and I've confessed my sin, What's he done? He says, He's as good as his word. He has said, I forgive you. Now, it wasn't free, right? Jesus paid for our sins. It's not free. It wasn't free. And it wasn't easy. It's easy on us in this sense. I confessed, God forgave. How should I go away thinking, I'm forgiven, and I'm clean, and my conscience is clear, and I can get back in the race of life and get up and keep going? In fact, guys, that's what we should do. And if we're not, we're not taking God at his word. If we don't know he delights in us, we're not taking him at his word. If we don't know we're forgiven, we're not taking him at his word. So when we confess our sins, God is faithful. Jesus died for them, sins of the world, your sins and mine. Lord, this is what I did. This is how I blew it. God says, Jesus paid for that sin. Thank you for clearing the slate, son or daughter. You're right, that was wrong, and, and we're good now. And we get up and we go on again. If you're a parent and your child came and said, Dad, I broke the glass, and you said, oh, son, that's, that's okay. Thanks for telling me, and we'll, we'll take care of it. And he tells you three weeks later, I'm so sorry I broke that glass. And he tells you six months later, I'm so gl- sorry I broke that glass. I feel terrible. Wouldn't you want to relieve him? Son, it's okay. We've taken care of it. It's covered. We need to know that we're forgiven, just like David would later in his life. Uh, So when we sin, we're called to confess our sin, and having confessed it, we're to take God at his word that we're forgiven in Christ. We go forward with no condemnation, with a clear conscience. Sometimes we say something like this, take it to the cross. Here's my last thing on this. If I just pray, and I know God the Father's out there someplace in heaven, and I pray, I may feel like I, I just—it just—it seems uh, empty, vacuous. Here's something I've done, and it was so helpful: uh, kneeling in prayer, confessing. I see this is my this is Mike's image. Okay, uh, I see Christ on the cross, and I and I go and I kneel and I put my hands on his bloodied, nailed feet. And I confess my sin, and I thank God for Jesus on the cross covering my sin. And guys, for me, in Mike's mind, the imagery helps me. I get it. I really sinned, and Jesus really died for that sin. So we want to make sure that we get it. When we've blown it, David blows it. That's not the end of the story. We confess. God forgives. We need to get up and get back in the race. Verse 25 David says, with the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless man you show yourself blameless, and he's applying this to himself by the way. With the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. Uh, the crooked guys, they can't manipulate you. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. That's, uh, that's parallelism, that's contrasting. You save humble people, proud people you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop troop of invaders, of foreign soldiers. By my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield. Again, similar imagery we've already seen. He's a shield to all those who take refuge in him. If we want mercy, guys, what do we show others? mercy if we want compassion what do we show others compassion because galatians 6 7 says whatever you sow you will reap and david's saying here i've sown faithfulness and that's what god's given me back i've shown faithfulness and god's rewarding it david concludes there everything god does is right and it's perfect and one day when we're in heaven guys and we look back on our own life or on the judgments of god we'll say lord it was perfect what you did it couldn't have been any better i couldn't see it in the moment but i see it now everything you've done is perfect verses 31 through 48 we'll go through in one section this is david describing big picture terms how god equipped him for warfare and then helped him and saved him in and through warfare he uses 13 examples of what god did for him verse 31 who is god but the lord but yahweh and who is a rock except our god The God who equipped me with strength. He made my way blameless. He made my feet. Think of this. My feet like the feet of a deer set me secure on the heights on the crags. So I'm a deer. My feet are equipped for the battle to get up on the high spot where I can be defended. My feet. He says, verse 34, he trains my hands. So I got my feet trained. My hands are trained for war. And my arms can bend a bow of bronze. God is equipping me personally. For the task at hand. God will equip us for the task at hand also. Uh, He has given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. This is a great line. Your gentleness made me great. Uh, Other translations use the term condescension. Your condescension has made me great. The thought is God has come down to lift me up. You gave a wide place for my steps under me. Think of the earlier reference being pulled out of the water, put on a broad place, And my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and I overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord but he didn't answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. That may refer to the Jewish people, thinking of King Saul. You made me the head of the nations, not Jews here, but the Gentiles. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. Now, that's a mouthful one. We want to be careful not to be put off by David's declaring the defeat of his enemies. And here's the thing. This is big picture. David is a warrior king, and he is God's warrior king. And put this in perspective back in the day. God's program with Israel under the old covenant was this. I'm going to put you in the land of promise and here's the dimensions, here's the boundaries, that's where I'm going to put you. You're going to be uniquely my holy separated people and I'm going to live with you and you're going to live with me and you remember God's presence, his holy presence, was in the tent and then later in the temple above the mercy seat in the holy of holies. God lived with Israel, God lived in Israel and part of that was so that... The nations of the world and anyone in the world that wanted to, to go, could go to a place and hear the gospel. They could hear about who the true and living God was. He's the God of the Jews. He lives in Jerusalem. He's in Israel. Now, what happens, guys, if the Jews can't key, uh, kick the Canaanites out of the land of promise? What happens? They lose. They, in fact, God warns them over and over and over: if you mingle with the Gentiles, you'll become idolaters. You'll you'll lose your light. You'll lose your testimony. You'll lose your saltiness. So for, for God's testimony to remain on the earth, Israel had to remain a distinct, holy nation in the land of promise. So one, they've got to kick out the Canaanites that are there when they arrive. And they've got to oppose the armies that would come in and harm them. Otherwise, God's testimony on earth is compromised. That's what David's doing. That's what God was doing. So David was fighting God's battles to keep the Jews a pure, a holy, and a separated people group because that's where the testimony to God, to the living and true God, would occur on the earth. So he speaks without apology as a military commander who's taken out the enemy because that's what was required. Is that required today? (laughs) Willie in Sunday school was quoting the Sermon on the Mount, uh, quoted from Luke 6 or 7 also, the Sermon on the Plain, where, do you know what it is to be perfect, God says, to be just like me? God says, do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you because God says, because I do good to the just and the unjust. I bring rain to everybody no matter what their relationship with me is. And that's what God calls us to do. So guys, today, here's the big difference. We live in the new covenant. We're we're not, as Christians, we're not defending geography because God has meant intentionally to scatter Christians all over the world, all throughout the world. Why? Why? He's told us, Revelation says, that before God, before the throne of Christ, there are going to be people from every tribe, race, tongue, and kindred from all over the earth. Christians have been scattered, right? That's what God wanted in this time. And Christians are bringing the gospel with us. So we're not protecting and defending geography today like David did. We're seeded throughout the earth so that all the earth can hear the gospel. That's the thing. Now, here's another thing, too. If you were, let's say, if you're David in his age, how do you, what, what, what kind of care do you think he took of his shield or his sword or his lamp? What, what kind of care do you think he took of that? Or if you were a soldier today and you're carrying your rifle in the field, what kind of care, if you knew your life depended on it, would you take of your weapon, your, your rifle or your sidearm or whatever? If you knew your life depended on it, you'd probably take pretty good care of it, right? Probably. What are Christians called to defend today? What's your my offensive weapon? Scripture's clear on this. What for the Christian overcomes the forces of the world? There's one word. Your faith. Your faith. This is 1 John 5 4. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. We're not defending geography. We're sharing the gospel and we're protecting and defending our faith and the faith of others as well. If you read Hebrews 11, it's an exhortation to imitate the faithfulness of saints who've gone before us. Keep faith to the end. That was the thought. Keep faith to the end. That's what we're called to. Now let me ask you, this this is not really a trick question, but maybe it is. I don't know. You know when you ask people a question if they don't know what you're really going for? They don't answer anything, do they? They just sit there like, you guys are doing right now. No, I don't know. So, if we need faith to overcome the world, if faith is the weapon of our warfare, if if I need to incite my faith, if I need to encourage my faith or yours, what do I do to get faith and get more faith? I read my Bible. (laughs) Romans 10 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing God's word or the word of Christ. Guys, here's the thing. Let me just say it again, and then I'll say it again, and then I'll say it again. Are you reading your Bible? And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. If you ate today, did you feed your soul and your spirit? You fed your body, I'll bet. Did you feed your soul? Did you encourage your own faith? Have you found this as i found lately? If I, I've, I watched a bunch of news on Russia and Ukraine. And guys, I read a couple newspapers every day. And inflation's higher than they're saying. And uh, we live in tumultuous times. And you know what starts happening to me? You know where this goes, right? You know what I start feeling? I start feeling anxious. I start feeling bad. I start feeling worried. And guess, guess where I resolve that? I go to my Bible, and I read. And you know, frankly, just in my daily reading, I'm just on a reading plan, I find God speaking to me every day about what's going on. In one of those four texts I'm in, God's speaking to me every day. And I'm like, God's got this, God's got this. And I go from anxiety, faithlessness, I don't trust God's really in control, to I'm at peace because I know God's got this. But that's the thing, we have to engender faith faith is what conquers our battles so what are we doing to instill to build to fire up to fuel up our own faith in god faith that tackles all the challenges of life you know that's the whole thing with chapter 11 in hebrews faith is the deal so are we working is our battle gear is it in place um Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10, I'm sorry, I'm going way too long. Let me let me wind down real quickly. Um, if I'm a soldier in the U.S. Army, I have physical real enemies with boots on the ground, right? But but you and I, all of us, army or no army, you and I are in a warfare because God tells us we are. So Ephesians 6 says you're in a warfare, but it's not physical, and you got to be very careful. If if uh, Putin is your idea of the guy you got to take down, you're short-sighted. If Biden is the guy that's wrecking your life, you're short-sighted. If your mayor, your county commissioners, the person down the block, if you're fixing your gaze on them as the problem, you're short-sighted. Because Paul says specifically in Ephesians six, our warfare is not here on the earth among human beings. It's spiritual. It's in the heavenlies. But he tells us, you've you've got this because just like David, as well as David, better than David, you're equipped for the war. Ephesians 6 you got a helmet, and it's called salvation. And you got a shield, and it's called faith. And you've got a breastplate, it's called righteousness. And you got a belt, and it's called truth you got a sword, it's called the Word of God, and your feet have sandals, which is the gospel. Guys, every one of those things is tied to the Word of God. If you don't know the Word of God, you are not prepared for battle. Period. Period. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, We're pulling down strongholds. The weapons of our warfare are mighty in God. What are the weapons? It's the truth. It's the Word of God. It's Scripture. That's how we pull down these opposing religions these opposing thoughts it's the word of god it's the truth so we build our faith we equip ourselves with the word of god let me read the closing doxology i've abused you this morning you know who i've really abused It's the people in the nursery (laughs) people have told me mike you could just keep teaching i say i'm thinking about the nursery workers so don't tell them i ran long okay uh, the closing doxology, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance, subdued peoples under me, rescued me from my enemies, yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me, you delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, sing to your name, great salvation he brings to his king, and show steadfast love to his anointed, and get this last line, David's the king, David's the anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Who's the ultimate offspring of David? It's the Lord Jesus. The Hebrew there is Zarah and it just means seed. Who's the ultimate seed of David? It's King Jesus. Listen, this is the thing, closing thought. Jesus is ultimately the one David closes with here. That God's favor is on Jesus Forever. And Jesus has conquered in the warfare that we really needed, sin, Satan, and death, Jesus has already done, dealt with, right? Because we have eternal life. We're not in his kingdom anymore. We're in God's family. But when he comes at the second coming, he's going to put down all the enemies. Guys, it's a short, and it's a bloody, and it's a death-filled warfare when King Jesus returns to the earth. That's what's coming. Guys, our God, he's a saving God, And Jesus is a saving King. And we got to get that. We got to hold on to that. Times are challenging now, they're likely to get harder. If you will, stand with me, and I want to read a prayer from Psalm 18, taken from Psalm 18. If this is uh, your heart, uh, pray this with me, okay? Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for Jesus, our great King and Defender, who saves us from sin and death. Satan and hell, let our lives be a joyful tribute to your saving grace and acts, and may your delight in us lead us to delight in you and all your children. For Jesus, amen.